Amen. Well, if you will open your Bibles with me to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. We've been mentioning uh, for the past number of sermons in this book that we were a little bit at a, a pivotal point because in chapters 1 through 6, Zechariah's prophecies were all about this idea of a coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We even saw repeatedly how the prophet Zechariah was prophesying about the restructuring or the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which meant something for those ancient believers who have regathered in that city, that the temple would be rebuilt and Jerusalem would again prosper. But we also saw how that prophecy actually pushed us to a further understanding of it's not just a prosperous kingdom in which the Lord is building in a historical context, but He's actually preparing a future glory for us that will pale in comparison to the riches of the great city of Jerusalem. And of course, that is heaven, the new Zion, which will come down as Christ consummates His kingdom. Well, here in chapter 9 through the rest of the book, our attention is going to be refocused a bit. Not upon the coming kingdom, which is to come, but actually upon the coming king in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's here in the latter half of this book that we see some of the most explicit references to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we turn our attention now to Zechariah chapter 9, we get to see the future unfolding. Yes, in a historical context, the immediate uh, first handful of verses will be about a hundred years after Zechariah proclaims this message. But ultimately, it will push us to look much farther than what's happened in past history, but what will happen in the future with the coming of the King Jesus. And so I'm going to read all 17 verses of Zechariah chapter 9. And then we will uh, journey through it together. Starting again in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. And Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel. And on Hamath also, which borders on it, and Tyre and Sidon though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded, the king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. And then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up for your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people for the For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. And may he write his eternal truths upon our hearts tonight. Well, as we uh, come to this lengthy chapter, this lengthy portion of God's word, and we attempt to handle this lengthy prophecy of the prophet Zechariah before us is really three parts. You have in verses 1 through 8 this message or this word of judgment, a judgment that's going to fall upon the pagan nations that surround Israel. And yet, within those first eight verses, there's a mixed message of judgment and a promise of grace. And then you look down at verses 11 through 17, and this time our attention is not cast to the pagan nations that surround Israel, but actually God's people themselves as they dwell there in Judah, in the city of Jerusalem. One of the things that we have to understand here is when the prophet speaks of Ephraim, that's just another name for the nation of Israel. And so even though right now in this historical context it's just Jerusalem being rebuilt, Judah, the kingdom being restored, what Zechariah is saying is that both of the kingdoms, the southern and the northern kingdom, will be reestablished and actually will be reunified as it was before the times of the wicked kings throughout the Old Testament. And so just to help us understand how we're going to handle this, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8, this word to God's enemies. Then we're going to look at verses 11 through 17 as God's word to the people. And then ultimately there in 9 and 10, we're going to see Zechariah turning our attention to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at the first eight verses, here it is that God speaks to the nation surrounding Israel and Judah. 
And this message of judgment, you notice, will start in the north with Damascus. That's the first nation that is uh, mentioned here within our text. Hedrock is just the surrounding nation. Damascus is the actual city. And then, if you know anything about geography, the men's class on Sunday mornings, they love maps, and so they might understand what I'm speaking of here. But when we move from Damascus in the north, we begin to move southward throughout the region all the way to Tyre. And Tyre is the first land in which, the first city, if you will, that is actually has a little commentary that's, that's linked to it. If you look back at verse 3, it says that Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. And so what's being established here is Tyre has for themselves a fortified island, if you will. We know because of archaeology and, and things like church history that Tyre was actually surrounded by 150-foot walls. It was a mega city that brought in all this maritime trade and they grew in their riches and their gold and their silver was in abundance. So much so that the ships leaving the island of Tyre would often throw their riches overboard into the sea because the ships could not contain all the riches that were being sent out. And yet, here it is in this message of judgment against the pagan nations that surround God's people, that the Lord Himself will strip her, in verse 4, of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. And so what Zechariah is saying is, people of God, you, you see the riches of this great city. You see the rapid growth of this great city. And even in comparison to you, small Israel, feeble Israel that's barely cutting it, barely making ends meet, who are weary and tired, you seem so small in comparison to this grand city, but the Lord will devour her. And so in this message of judgment, there's also this message of grace for the people of God, that your enemies seem to be triumphant. Your, your enemies seem to be without even the hope of victory against. And, and yet, the Lord is establishing this promise in which He is saying, Tyre, I will destroy. Your enemies, I will put underfoot. Now what's actually really captivating about this message of judgment as the prophet Zechariah tells us about Tyre and Ashkelon and, and Gaza and Ekron and Ashdod and Philistia. All of these cities are actually pretty great cities. But even they pale in comparison to the greatest enemies of God's people in this current context. Because what's not mentioned here is the kingdom of Assyria or the empire of Egypt and Babylon, even the Medo-Persian empire that's established now by force, which Jerusalem is just a small part of. And so you would imagine, if you were in the shoes of these Jewish believers, that when Zechariah is promising victory over their enemies, he would talk of the biggest 
of the nations, the biggest of the empires, the grandest of the cities, but that's not on the list of enemies at all. These pagan nations that are mentioned actually go back to the indwelling of the land of Canaan under Joshua. And even the cities who stand against God's people throughout the judges as they continue to inhabit the promised land of old. And so right off the bat, there's a theological thrust that's being established here for God's people, and we need to pay careful attention to it. Because these are the cities, grand though they are, they're not the grandest of the cities, but these are the cities that have stood against God's people and God's people because of their sin, because of their compromise, actually fell into the hands of. You see, it's, it's these cities that are mentioned here in this passage that reminds us of the sin of the forefathers that have gone before these Jewish believers. It's, it's in these cities, in these places in which the people of God were told to go and conquest and conquer, and yet they compromised and they began to take all those false gods as their gods. And they sinned and they did not kill all the people in which they were supposed to kill. You, you think about King Saul in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel 15, you remember he was told to go into the city and kill everyone. Don't leave anyone living so that you will not be tempted to take their gods as your gods. So that you might not be tempted to fall into their sins as your own sins and and as the prophet Samuel approaches King Saul, Saul has kept the best of the people. Paul has kept the best of the animals. Paul has kept the, or Saul rather, has kept the, the best of the wines and he has left the king to live. And Samuel sees Saul's transgressions against the law of God, the commandments of God. And he says, Saul, why have you done such a thing? And we know throughout the rest of our Old Testament it's because of Saul's sins that that city remains standing and those gods now become the gods in idolatry of God's people. And so Zechariah begins to pronounce this terrible word of judgment so that the people of God might understand that what you have left undone, now God is going to do. And that's a great message, I think. That's a great message of the gospel because like Saul, what we deserve is for us to be cast out of the kingdom. Like Saul, what we deserve is to be under the judgment of a sovereign and a wrathful God and yet God is rewriting the story for His disobedient people. He's saying, I see what you have done and I see what you have left undone and the promises of the gospel is, I will rewrite the narrative and I will do what you have failed to do. And, and you think about that. Because we've just confessed together there's things that we ought to have done and we have left it undone. And those, there, there are things that we've done which we ought not to have done. And praise God for the mercy of Jesus Christ because He comes and He succeeds in the places that we fail. In the same way, God is establishing this idea of judgment. He's establishing this idea of judgment so that we might not see a judgment that falls upon the people of God, but a judgment that falls upon the enemies of God. 
How often are we a people who compromise to worldly standards? How often are we a people who take the world's gods as our own in idolatry? And yet the Lord says to us, I rewrite your narrative through the Gospel. I take you, a sinner, vile and helpless, guilty under my law, and I succeed where you fail. Oftentimes when we go to the New Testament, we think about the Gospels of the Lord Jesus Christ. We think about those ways in which He succeeds where the people of God in the Old Testament failed. We've already mentioned the conquest into the promised land, but before the promised land, where were the people? They were in the wilderness, weren't they? And there they were tempted and they were trod. They were tested. And often, so often, it seemed like with every turn of the page as we read through that that journey through the wilderness, God's people were in the wilderness and they were turning away from God and turning to themselves. And then we see the person of Jesus Christ in the wilderness. And we see Him being tested and trod and tempted in the very same ways Israel was in the wilderness. And yet, Christ succeeds in their place. That's the imputed righteousness of God. That's that active obedience of His Son in which we confess together in our confessions of faith and in our catechism that now God comes in the person of Jesus Christ and He does what we were supposed to do which is keep the commandments of our Lord. And so we know that this is actually what comes to pass. In the historical context, we can actually pinpoint it on a timeline. In 333 B.C., Alexander the Great, leading the Greek army, he will come and he will start at Damascus and he will travel southward and he will conquer every city that's mentioned here in the prophecy of Zechariah. Not only should that help you understand that we have a historically based religion that we can go back and we can take the Word of God and we can say, does this happen? Yes, it does. 333 B.C., Alexander conquers Damascus, and then like dominoes, the rest of them fall. But actually, what we need to understand here is that the Scriptures are pushing us far past, past Eshkelon and Ashdod and, and Gaza and it's telling us that ultimately all of our enemies will be put underfoot. All of our undone, our sin, our iniquity, all of that will be underfoot as sin is no more in this coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a warning, I think, in the first eight verses. The the warning is that judgment is coming. For the the cities and the nations that are listed here, you can imagine that they have the, the same mindset of Psalm 97. The Lord, He must be asleep. He doesn't see my sin. These cities must think, you know, the Lord was on the side of the people of Israel and they stood up against us and yet we were the ones that prevailed. And so judgment has already tried to come to our gates, and it has failed. But the warning is, actually, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for these cities in a historical context, and judgment is coming for the enemies of God and His people. And so we don't need to be secure in our sins. 
We don't need to say that this is God talk, if you will, amounts to nothing and changes nothing because judgment is not coming. No, judgment is coming. It might be delayed for a season, but judgment is indeed coming. There's a word of warning. But for the people of God, there's a word of comfort, isn't there? That all of these things will be no more. That in this coming King Jesus, not only has He covered our sins by His shed blood on Calvary, not only has He done what we left undone and not done what we have sinfully done, but in this new story, that there is a coming day that all of God's enemies and our enemies will then be underfoot. That's what we read in Psalm 2 this morning, that all the, the nations of the world that stand against God... God sees them and He chuckles because He knows that they are plotting in vain. Anytime I think about that psalm and the the chuckling of God from the throne of heaven, I I think about a game, and I've used this illustration before, I think about a game that, that dads often play with their kids. I play it often with my kids. Right now it's basketball season in the Adams household, and Brooks is very excited about basketball, so we're always dribbling the basketball in our driveway and he's always trying to steal the ball while I'm dribbling it well all I have to do right is pick up the ball and hold it about yay high and Brooks can jump and Brooks can swipe and Brooks can cry if he wants to cry but there's nothing that he can do to get that ball away from me and so I sit there and I laugh at him The same is true about our God. He knows that there is nothing that the nations can do to thwart His sovereign plan to eradicate His enemies. And so He sits upon His throne and He chuckles at them. But in this promise that God will destroy the enemy, something happens, or something said in verses 7 through 8, that actually might catch us by surprise. If you have your Bibles open, I'd invite you to look back at verses 7 and 8 because here it is that in this message of judgment against the nations that stand against the Lord's people, it says, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. At first, we might think that's a continued message of judgment, but it's not. Keep reading. It too shall be a remnant for our God, and it shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites, and then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. What Zechariah is promising here and prophesying about is actually in these pagan nations, these sin-filled cities, God will preserve for Himself a remnant. Even in these most wicked of nations, God is still at work within them and He will call out for Himself His people. Many of y'all know that we've been reading through uh, the children's version of Pilgrim's Progress at our house. Before the kids go to bed, we've been reading Pilgrim's Progress and there is a city named Vanity Fair in that book. The book's split up in two main characters. First you have Christian, and then you have Christiana, a male and female pilgrim who's traveling to the king's celestial city, which is heaven. And on their journey of this pilgrimage, it's it's time now for Christiana to leave Vanity Fair in, in our reading, but Christian and Christiana come to this city called Vanity Fair, and 
Vanity Fair has all the riches and all the gold and all the silver that's mentioned like here in Tyree. And it's very easy for the pilgrims who are traveling through there to be captivated by all the trappings of the riches of this world and all the, all the pleasure it seems like sin is bringing to these people who live there. And yet when Christiana comes, she's so worried. I will be so captivated. I will be so tempted. I, will, I want to stay there. And Great Heart, who is the leader of this tribe of pilgrims in Christiana's story says, don't you worry. The other people of God, the other pilgrims who live in Vanity Fair, they will keep your attention upon the king. And it was mind-blowing, right? Because when we read Christian, there was no mention of all these other believers, pilgrims that were living in this city. But now when we reach Christiana, it's a it's this discovery that even in these wicked nations, even in these sin-filled cities, God has pre preserved for Himself a people. What we call in the Old Testament a remnant, it might not be grand in nature, it might not look spectacular compared to all the trappings of the world, but in these cities will be a people of God who will be preserved and will be rescued. It's something like the idea of when, when the people led by Joshua were about to begin to march around Jericho to destroy the city. They find for themselves a believer named Rahab who is preserved and who is saved. And so even in this message of judgment, not only is there grace and, and a, a message of good to be proclaim to us as a people of God, but there is grace and mercy that is being upheld or held out even for the people who live in those cities to now turn to Christ as judgment is soon to come. Remember we talked about, right, how it seems as if in these wicked cities that judgment has tried to come through the nation of Israel during the times of the judges, in the times of the conquest led by Joshua, but it has not come. And we said, judgment might be delayed, but it is coming. And that's a message I think that we need to hear as well. Because what that shows us is there is still a time to repent and turn to the Lord. There's this season, if you will, out of God's mercy, that the gospel is being offered freely to the sin-filled nations Judgment is coming. Repent and turn to the coming King who will destroy His enemies. Well, that's the first half of this chapter, verses 1 through 8. But now, the attention in verses 11 through 17, the attention is turned to God's people specifically. But the, the main character, if you will, it's not the pagan nations as it was in verses 1 through 8. The, the main character is God Himself in verses 11 through 17. Because here it is, the theme is, is almost military-like as, as God comes, He's in conflict with His enemies, He defeats all those who stand against Him and His people. Many commentators call him in this section the warrior God. And then in verse 14 it says this, Then the Lord will appear over them 
and His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. Here's a God who now carries out His conflict with sin and Satan. But who does He use to do this? Well, it's there for us in verse 13. For I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim, remember Israel, its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Well, here it is that, that God is promising is actually through His people that He uses to carry out His conquest. This, this language of Judah being bent as the bow, Ephraim, Israel, its arrow, and then Ephraim being shot out like an arrow going forth in lightning. That is a message that God's people are those who go into battle and they are the ones that are triumphant. See, as the Lord marches through, the text says, the weapons of His war is His chosen race. And so here's an important lesson I think that we need to understand is that as Christians, we cannot be indifferent to the battle that rages on around us. We know that we live again in a sin-filled city. We know that we live in a sin-filled county, state, nation, world. We live in a culture that has stood against God. And so this battle which is raging is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over the present darkness. We are fighting a spiritual battle that's struck between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And so the Apostle Paul tells us that it's time for us now to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, stand firm. He tells us that this is a war that's raging on that we are engaged in. We can't sit on the sidelines and be indifferent. We can't be neutral in this battle that rages on between God and His enemies. It's actually said here that we are God's instruments. We are God's weapons for battle. That we are combatants, if you will, in the Lord's army in this spiritual conflict between the kingdom of God and the domain of or dominion of Satan. And so Zechariah here is encouraging these returned exiles to Jerusalem that they must be about the fight. And that's a message that needs to be heard. Just like the inhabitants of Jerusalem were weary. Remember we have said that they had plows in one hand and swords in the other. They were working on the temple, working on the great city, and yet they knew that these wicked nations were pressing against them and they did not want to see Jerusalem restored. God's saying, as you have your plow in one hand and your sword in the other, you are fighting the fight and the fight has already been won. So we get to work on, labor on, we get to fight on with much confidence because we get to participate in the victory of this coming king as He is our elder brother, as Christ is the head of the church, as His is the throne in heaven, so is ours as we are made co-heirs with Jesus. And so we are conquerors, verses 11 through 17 says. But it also says that we are crowns, doesn't it? 
In verses 16 and 17 it says, On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on His land. For how great is His goodness and how great is His beauty. Now that tells us how we are going to be victorious. That tells us exactly how we are going to be victorious even in this age. Not only in the age to come, but remember, in this age, the kingdom of God is always growing, Paul says in Colossians 1. It's always bearing fruit. It's always increasing. God's kingdom is always moving forth. Jesus tells His disciples, I'm going to build my kingdom in the very presence of the gates of hell. He's saying, I'm going to build it in enemy territory. And it's not going to be a little shack. It's going to be a glorious kingdom That is like the mustard seed at first. It seems so insignificant, but one day it will be a tree where all the birds will flock to rest. This kingdom and this king that is to come has secured the victory and now we are jewels in his crown. Oftentimes I've heard pastors and preachers preach this text and they turn their attention to the crowns of righteousness that we'll receive in heaven. That's not where Zechariah is going with this. He's saying we shine forth the beauty of the crown of the coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalmist says, They shall shine like jewels of a crown on His land, for how great is His goodness and how great is His beauty. The psalmist and the prophet Zechariah uses the very same language. And this is something that we've been looking at in our lengthy exposition of Titus. Because here it is, That Zechariah is saying the people of God being the jewels in the crown, shining forth the beauty of the Lord will be living demonstrations of God's grace and God's favor. God's mercy and God's grace. And we will be those who know the message of judgment because we were the ones who were deserving of that judgment. Yet through Christ we have now been relieved from that wrath to come. And so we think about, lastly and very quickly, verses 9 and 10. We know this text fairly well, I would imagine. It's a text that we read during the Easter season, especially on Palm Sunday, because here Zechariah is prophesying the, the, the scene of the triumphant entry into Jerusalem that's done by Jesus we, we understand that because it says that this coming king will be mounted upon a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so you have this imagery, if you will, this, this future picture of King Jesus in a historical context entering into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. And they're singing praises and they're exclaiming hosannas and We have often said those same people who are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will be the same ones in just a week who will shout, crucify him. And why are they so fickle? Because this Jesus who rides on a donkey's colt is not the Jesus in which they desired and imagined. They thought what would happen between verse 8 and the rest of Zechariah would be verse 8 would then move to verse 14. That God is triumphant, He's coming as a mighty warrior God, and now His arrow will go forth and all of the enemies will be no more. Yet in this season of the free offer of the gospel, the mercy of the Lord being held out for 
the nations. We see a Christ that comes to bring peace and not war. It's so confusing, I think, for the people in Jerusalem. Because they want this warrior God. And yet here is God in the flesh riding very peacefully upon the donkey's colt. Heading into the city of Jerusalem, giving himself up to the hands of the religious establishment so that he might be put to death. Death on a cross. And it teaches us something about the way in which we will impact the nations. Because as Jesus gives himself up into the hands of his enemies, as he is falsely accused, betrayed, murdered, we know that it's at the cross of Calvary that it's actually the fulfillment of Zechariah coming to fruition. That the way in which he makes enemies, now sons and daughters, is because he has washed them in his blood. He has served them himself so that they might be redeemed. So that they might look upon him, one who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, being obedient unto death, even death on a cross, so that he might be high and lifted up and all the nations might bend a knee to King Jesus. And so as we think about this idea of how we are going to be the weapons that the Lord uses to draw the nations unto himself, Zechariah is telling us that we must be like Jesus. That we must be those warriors who come in this season of mercy and grace. We must be those who come as servants. We must be those who come humble. We must be those who display Christ's likeness in all the nations so that, again, using the words of the Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 2, that we might adorn the gospel. And so that when others look upon us, they might say, how great is His goodness. Not our goodness. Not Matt's goodness, because he walks in the way of righteousness but His goodness because the Lord has saved a wretched sinner. And if He can save Matt, He can save me. That is the coming King. He comes to break the chains of sin and He comes to set the sinners free. May we uphold, proclaim, and live out that gospel until Jesus returns and all of our enemies are then put underfoot. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we do thank You for the opportunity to come to Your Word. We pray, Lord, that we would be those who understand that judgment is coming. And so if we are not those who are repentant, if we have not proclaimed Jesus Lord of our life, we pray that we would know that the only means of escape from the wrath of God is through the person and work of Jesus. And so let us put our trust in Him, the coming King who died for sinners. And Father, we pray that we would not be on the sidelines of this raging war around us, that, but that we would be uh, faithful soldiers of the cross, that we would stand upon the truth, that we would proclaim the doctrines of our holy religion, but that we might be servants of the Most High God. If Christ did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but was obedient and lived out a life of service to usher in His kingdom, Father, let us be like Him. Let us be growing in our humility. Let us take up that servant posture 
Let us give of ourselves for others, for the advancement of your kingdom. And may we take great pleasure in knowing that that kingdom is always growing, always bearing fruit, always increasing, until it is consummated in glory forever. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen.